there, folks. Welcome to Enough Y'all, the real talk podcast for intersectional allies and social justice academics. I'm your host, Dr. Kim Case, social psychologist and Appalachian academic with the passion for truth telling, centering the soul's goals, and talking with my hands. If you enjoy the show, check out my course on white anti-racism, as well as free resources at drkimcase.com. Okay, today we have with us Dr. Michelle R. Nario Redman, who is a professor of psychology at Hiram College, specializing in stereotyping, prejudice, and disability studies. Her research focuses on group identification and political advocacy, strategies of responding to prejudice, and the unintended consequences of simulating disability. She's a member of the Society for the Psychological Study of Social Issues and the Society of Disability Studies. Welcome, Michelle. Super excited to have you with us. Thank you, Dr. Kim. <laughs> Great. Okay. So our main topics today are going to be focusing in on, just for you know, get the audience um, oriented, so, um, study of culture stereotypes, um, disability identity, and the problems associated with simulating impairments, which you kind of referenced in your bio. But before we get into it, I want to give you the chance, and I try to do this if I remember most of the time, <laughs> to share with the listeners your own intersectional social location, any social identity and pronouns you might want to share with us. Sure. So I am a first-generation Latina baby boomer whose dad uh, immigrated from Mexico, and I identify as female, so she, her pronouns are just fine, and um, I'm increasingly feeling uh, the weight of my advancing age, so I'm embracing my my age, if you will. Okay. You're embracing (laughs) it. You're embracing it. I'm trying. Okay, great. Great. Maybe you can give me some tips on that. <laughs> All right. Fabulous. Um, okay. Clearly we're here because we need someone who's a scholar on disability studies to break some things down for us. So uh, I'm just going to open real general kind of summary wise and ask you to just give us um, a general feel of what your scholarship and teaching on disability and ableism has been about. Whatever summary you'd like to share. Sure. So you know, like a lot of people, I really wasn't interested in disability until it had had a personal impact on my own life when my daughter was born about 26 years ago with spina bifida. And it caught me by surprise as someone that studies the stereotypes and prejudice of all kinds of groups, ethnic groups, religious groups, age groups. And yet my training as a graduate student was really incomplete to the extent that we did not talk about disability as a group membership. And I had the fortune to attend some talks uh, by famous psychologists with disabilities who were sharing at APA conferences and so forth information about disability identity and disability culture and disability stereotypes in in the abstract. And I realized that it was kind of a professional coup, coup to have the opportunity to bring disability as a group identity and to advance sort of the theory of social identity uh, into social psychology, and at the same time, include my daughter in in my journey, who was my muse in many ways, and she ended up benefiting a lot from just my exposure to scholars who were looking at primarily the social construction of disability, or how not so much um, biological impairment impacted people's sense of self or treatment, but how you know the values we hold and the stigma and the myths and the misinformation around disability as a tragedy really pervades the field. And so what could I do as someone that studies these things to update the field? And that sort of is how I got started. 
that's not a, that's not a small feat to take on <laughs> for sure. Right. I mean, talk about having plenty of work to do. I'm sure you've been busy. I, a few things you said, I want to just come back to, um, is there anything else you can say about disability identity and culture to give people that may, may yeah. haven't had exposure to that just a little more taste? Sure. So we know that many of us grow up in families where our cultural identities are central and valued and we're proud to be uh, members of certain groups. It's interesting, though, as someone that grew up half Mexican, um, that pride didn't come until later because I grew up in a town where this was not a valued membership. And so I kind of kept it hidden for mm -hmm. a while. But increasingly, people with disabilities are recognizing that these uh impairments that they experience, whether blindness, deafness, learning disabilities, cognitive impairments, traumatic brain injuries, and so forth, are also very much shared by one in four people in the United States and, and more globally. And so the more people become aware that they share a common group membership with others, either through their experiences with for example, for us, the Spina Bifida Association or disability studies, communities that are studying disability from an academic perspective, but cross-disciplinary perspectives began coming together to realize that not only do they share um, coping strategies and ways of mitigating misunderstanding from others, but they share sort of common experiences with resilience and a recognition that others have come before them to fight for their inclusion and disability rights. And so this notion of disability community or having an identity then that you are willing to accept as defining of who you are, that it's not just something you know, that you're hiding or that you're dealing with medically, that right. you're part of a broader community that has long fought for recognition and uh, awareness around accomplishments We've had several American presidents with disabilities that, you know, we didn't really find out about until we started looking mm. into things because it's often kept hidden or under wraps because of all the stigma. And then beyond just this community, this sense that I belong as a member of the broader disability community, regardless of my impairment, to a group of people that knows how to be creative, how they've had to figure out how to get in yeah. buildings through the back door sometimes or to you know, respond to people who stare or to mm -hmm. who mistake them as living tragic lives, that there's this other sort of piece called disability culture that shares not only a common group identity, but that celebrates the experience of disabled ways of being that celebrates okay. through art and through uh, politics and through dance, um, a way of being that you know, is subjectively worthwhile, even mm -hmm. though in time it can be, it can be painful at times and, and difficult. I'm so glad I asked you to go back to that because that might be the most beautiful explanation I think I've ever heard of any kind of marginalized group, community and identity. It was just, yeah, thank you for that. Wow. These are things that are very much neglected in higher ed in general, in the academy in general, in social justice movements in general, right? And so I think it might be worth it to go back to the social construction of disability and the myths Clearly, you hinted at a few already. So that, you know, this is just a tragedy. This, you know, that myth, the belief system of looking at people with pity. So it goes with the tragedy, I guess. What else would you say are some basics that maybe you want to mention for people? <laughs> sure. And and this sort of ties into what we just talked about with respect to culture. I think for yeah. a, a long time, higher ed and the general population 
in, as well has looked at disability as something inside the person that people mm. would prefer not to deal with as opposed to a part of the human condition, that it's something that um, we should be ashamed of. It's certainly not something that's part of the multicultural landscape, at least historically. And so to the extent that I'm going to try to unpack some of these myths and stereotypes um, that are so central to our field in psychology, I think it's important that we begin to have a dialogue around changing the way the general public views disability. It's much more complicated and higher ed because one in four students in our classrooms is either currently experiencing some form of disability, whether psychiatric, depression mm -hmm. is on the rise. Right. Uh, many are invisible conditions that deal with post-COVID related fatigue and so forth. Some of the things that I've been trying to do with altering the way that we view disability, not as just something inside the body that's synonymous with paralysis or blindness or deafness or dyslexia. That's instead very similar to how we viewed race for many years or socioeconomic status in, in terms of it is what people sort of say it is or how people treat these groups and how they mm. fail to recognize that they are members of broader communities that have things to celebrate, that have learned how to become resilient, not in spite of their disabilities or impairments, but because of them. And so I know that some schools, some higher ed institutions are working really hard to mm -hmm. uh, trouble, to disrupt right. the idea that um, we should even be teaching about disability in our classes and that uh, the content of all disciplines could be enriched by examining a disability perspective. So just to back up and focus on one of the first things I wanted to do with research is to think about what the stereotypes are. What are the beliefs mm -hmm. that people have that are really perhaps inaccurate or maybe right. in part informed by a kernel of truth? And I thought, surely psychology, social psychology has studied disability as a group membership and there must be cross impairment stereotypes or beliefs about the broader group that are perhaps overgeneralized and probably some impairment specific stereotypes mm -hmm. about blindness and so forth. And when I went to go search the literature, and this was in the early 2000s, uh, it was really surprising to find that very little had been done on yeah. quantifying global mm -hmm. stereotypes or beliefs that we have stored in memory about the broader group, whether or not we endorse them to be true. So right. just like race stereotypes, whether or not we endorse the idea that African-Americans uh, are better dancers, we right. know, or that women are better nurturers than men, mm -hmm. that these are in the popular press, the media, mm -hmm. and in the stories that we tell. And why is that? Where do these stereotypes come from? And how are they maintained? I went about sort of summarizing what we did know about stereotypes and was surprised to hear from an editor of this first paper that was published on cultural stereotypes that he had to look up as well because he didn't believe that there wasn't research <laughs> yet on cross impairment, meaning doesn't matter what your particular right. condition is, that there right. are these gestalt, <clears throat> almost broad-based beliefs that disabled people have been talking about forever, that they're yeah. viewed as incompetent. These are the top three stereotypes that we've Okay, here we go. Okay, we're listening. Okay. <laughs> incompetent, helpless, slash dependent, and asexual. Right. Okay. And, and there are more. There are, you know, sort of a top right. 10 list, but some of them are negative uh, and some of them are positive. You know, sometimes we think of disabled people as plucky and uh, brave and inspirational. And so we wanted to That's know, the one. 
that's, that's the, the one, one. <laughs> inspirational yeah okay which is a benevolent stereotype right it's right, like oh right. you're 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 supposedly uh stronger than the average person and how could you possibly uh go out and take the train and date people I mean I just wouldn't know how to manage if I experienced disability right. I would just crawl up in a ball in the corner and give up on everything right, right. which is really saying something about the negative side of it I mean it's, it's still an insult it's an insult because I think yeah. what they're inspired by is not necessarily disabled people who have climbed Mount Everest or done things right. that are perhaps truly inspirational, which means that they should uh, evoke approach uh, uh, that if someone is inspiring someone else or a group that they should that that should actually signal striving and interest and uh, expansiveness in one's own search for meaning or whatever right. it might be. And Sometimes I think we use the word inspire to signal uh, just surprise that some that a group that is so thought to be incapable and dependent and suffering could possibly benefit from their experience or, or be inspiring. So I think often or just get themselves to Starbucks. <laughs> I want to come back to that because I do yeah. think there is yet to be good empirical data on the extent to which people are truly inspired by mm -hmm. others who may go before them with cancer diagnoses or other conditions that they then say, okay, if that person can do it, so can I, or mm -hmm. if that person is so similar to me that I can then recognize my own inner strength and in being able to go through this, maybe yeah. there is something beneficial about being inspired. But I think mm -hmm. often it is what you said earlier, this sense of pity that Oh, right. I say I'm inspired, but really I feel so bad for you because look at you, you're trying so hard just to get out of the house and take public transportation that I feel obligated to go up to you and tell you in person. Pat you on the back for that. Mm -hmm. Right. That you you give me hope and you make me want to, you make me feel bad about my own complaining because if you can get off the couch, you know, what's my excuse? So that's a good point. That piece on benevolence, benevolent stereotypes and beliefs about the other as right. somehow more equipped um, or even people who are parents of kids with disabilities, you know, God can only, will only give you what you can handle. And sure. so they, you must be especially picked, you know, is another sort of form of that. Um, yes. Othering. Oh yes. I had, well, I guess you would know. <laughs> I was <laughs> right. like, I hadn't even thought about the, you know, the caregiver piece also sort of extension of these myths and belief systems sort of being enacted on um, others. One of the things you mentioned that I think would be helpful for social justice academics, shout out to the audience, is about career paths, because we do get a lot of messages as we're being trained up in our field. And, you know, not everybody's listening is from our field, but the training is still very traditional and very um, here's what you do. And then this is the next step. And this is the next step. And if you veer off that, then something's wrong with you kind of messages. So I wanted to hear about your career path and maybe make it a little more, more acceptable for people to think about twists and turns. Thank you. And a lot often, I think if you ask people about their career paths, they'll tell you about these sort of random things that happen that then somehow actually inspire a professional development or a, a, a change in tact, which is exactly what happened to me. I realized that the field of social psychology had not really looked into, they had looked into disability as a, as a condition that is stigmatized and, okay. and that's important research. But yet they had not been looking at disability as a group membership, as a cultural right. identity, as something that can buffer one from the negative consequences mm -hmm. of being treated disparately or dis discriminated against or uh, okay. 
just viewed as someone who's lesser than. And so I started out when my daughter was very little. I was a visiting professor at Reed College and I had grown up under the tradition of social identity theory. And so we had students who were interested in pursuing undergraduate theses. They all had to do something as kind of a capstone project their senior year. And it turns out, as you might expect, uh, many students at Reed College were also disabled students, some physical, some with psychiatric and some with learning disabilities. So I ended up having all of these advisees who wanted to do empirical research on some aspect of disability. And one of the first projects that we did was a project on disability stereotypes. And so students very much with disabilities were collaborators early on in figuring out what we already knew and what was really coming out of the humanities from stories and memoirs of disabled people saying, okay. people assume that I'm incompetent and asexual. And, and yet this hadn't been sort of systematically um, measured in a way that captured how much consensus there was, not only among non-disabled people who may have viewed people with disabilities, again, as brave, courageous, but dependent and tragic and certainly asexual, but people with disabilities themselves who grow up hearing these stories who yeah. had an, either internalized or at least were aware that there were these myths and stereotypes about their their own group. And so we asked them point blank, what are the stereotypes that you are aware of, whether or not you believe in them or endorse them to be true. Mm -hmm. And many of our uh, colleagues at the time thought, you're just going to get a mishmash of individualistic responses that aren't going to adhere because everyone has their own <laughs> ideas. And that is not what we found. We found that some of the same uh, concepts, themes, and categories were coming up over and over again and that's how we then began to measure the extent to which people agreed on these disability stereotypes and the extent to which okay. dis disability stereotypes differed among target groups that were male versus female. So disabled oh. men versus disabled women. I, I want to eventually get to your point about students today, because I think even those of us that teach stereotyping and prejudice are beginning to recognize the importance of intersectionality, that we can't just have students doing projects on one identity group and the yeah. way that they're pigeonholed or treated hostily yeah. or benevolently. And so I've had to morph my syllabus and my assignments to begin to think about mm. what about the the black disabled woman or the gay right. person with mental health uh, diagnoses. And, and so that's been an important thing to recognize. I've often said mm. that we train pe people in my field, but also teachers to be very siloed. And so it's like, do you wanna be a gener general education teacher or a special education teacher. And that has long-term repercussions on whether people yes. are prepared to meet the needs of their diverse learners, which are everywhere. And especially if they're trained to delegate that to a special ed teacher or aide because they feel that they haven't had the training to, to address the needs of their full diverse student population. Everybody's in the same room. Everybody right. can be taught with the same approach as right. if there's this average student, which, you know, one of the shout outs I can give to my colleagues who want to know more about what we can do in higher education is a TED talk by Ted Rose that really made an impact on me, the myth of the average. There's no such thing as the average student, whether you're talking about elementary, high school or higher ed. Mm -hmm. And they all have these jagged learning profiles. And yet many of yeah. us approach our teaching in ways, especially at the college level, where we don't necessarily have teaching credentials. We just have our expertise, and we've developed along the way pedagogy that hopefully meets the needs of our students. But 
what what people fail to recognize, I think, is that once you get to college, people aren't approaching you, your teachers and aides saying, hey, let's make sure you're achieving to the level of your ability because yeah. we have identified that you have this attentional issue or, you know, these occupational therapy issues that may, you know, require alternative ways of doing things and participating in gym class and so forth. And yet they come to college and students who've been on individual education plans or 504 plans, their whole careers as students don't come out and ask for the accommodations they need in college. And so then they're really not identified until they're somewhat in a failing state. So colleges are doing more to the extent that we're aware of things like making our classrooms more universally designed so that we're from the outset designing for diversity yeah, and recognizing that students with disabilities aren't different from the students that are gifted or high achieving, that they are often one and the same people. And the same thing with students without disabilities. They have areas of challenge and yet it's often the few and far between professor that seems to be really looking to modify their curriculum and pedagogy in ways that with retention in mind. I want to go ahead and jump to this idea of um, this very, I feel like, far-reaching activity where people do in student affairs, but also sometimes in coursework, this simulation of impairment. So I'm sure you have a few things to say about it. Can we have your critique? Sure. <laughs> and what generally you could do, do that. And then we'll talk about generally advice for teachers who do want to incorporate more. Right. Um, okay. Okay. So we know that people like to do fun activities and activities they're speaking of experiential, experiential right? <laughs> and um, engaging. And so these simulation activities, if the audience isn't as aware, are, are so pervasive because they do them in graduate training programs, businesses yeah. do them. And it's always they're, they're trotted out as a way to make people more aware of disability. So disability invoke awareness. Empathy, mon- maybe they think they're invoking yes, empathy somehow. Absolutely. That, that there's a way that we can talk about disability once a month or somewhere during disability awareness month. And people can experience vicariously what it might be like under the assumption that this is going to do exactly what you said, can build empathy and understanding and, you know, walking in the shoes, so to speak, of others who may experience a form of blindness. So there are goggles people will wear that simulate low vision or peripheral vision impairments, or people can use wheelchairs to simulate paralysis and they have to go get a meal uh, without a tray in a wheelchair or navigate the space and test the elevators out around campus. Or they put earplugs or earphones in and people read them some sort of text where they supposedly are getting the experience of uh, hearing loss And the same thing with dyslexia, the famous dyslexia simulation where you read some text backwards and that's supposed to give people insight into the insider's experience. So the problem is that these are not really accurate with respect to the insider's experience. And they've historically have not been evaluated to see whether they work or components of these simulations really work to improve attitudes or raise awareness about disability or hopefully increase empathy. So we um, had an opportunity because student life at our school was going to do disability awareness activities in the dining hall. And we tried to give them some information that sort of questioned the efficacy and whether this was really a good idea to appropriate identity. And, you know, often these activities devolve into humorous laughter. And that's Mm -hmm. not a bad thing. We want students to be engaged. But 
they weren't so willing to uh, receive the critique. So we decided instead, let's ask if we can just evaluate how students feel after participating. Mm -hmm. So we did a pre-post simple evaluation of mood, of beliefs about disability. So some disability stereotypes, like, do you feel more dependent? Do you feel less competent or to what extent, um, you know, and some other things that they noticed. And so after Hold that, on. I'm so scared <laughs> that these things are going to be worse than before they did the activity. Like that's, their stereotypes would be stronger. They, okay. That's true. I'm listening. That's okay. Kind of what happened. We That was sort of an exploratory measure too, because it wasn't about, do you, what do you think of disabled people? What are the stereotypes okay. you believe? This was to what extent do you personally feel uh, frustrated, irritable, mm. brave, uh, dependent, helpless, asexual. We asked a variety of questions. And then we asked some attitudinal questions too about their beliefs and their feelings toward disabled people. Okay. And so many of the results came back more negative after the fact than before. So attitudes toward disabled people, people were more likely to say they wanted to avoid them. Intentional mm -hmm. behaviors were um, measured. So we asked, would you be willing to participate in interviews with disabled people around making the campus more accessible? They were more willing to give more time before they simulated impairments compared to after. Okay. They felt more uh, disability stereotypes applied to them internally. So more dependent, okay. more irritable. The one thing that was positive was the feeling thermometer where they said they felt warmer toward mm. people with disabilities after they simulated a variety of impairments compared to before. And we thought about that for a while and that could be a good thing. And yet we wondered if it was also possibly related to pity, uh, that the idea that I feel for these folks now that I've used their equipment. Um, but but the whole premise of the setup was to say, this is what it's this is what disability simulations say disability is like. And we know that there may be other opinions about that, but we want you to take on these activities as if you were considering yourself a disabled person, because that's how it's framed up. Now, that's the problem, because it's not so much that we shouldn't encourage people to express their curiosity about wheelchairs and what that might be like to navigate a campus with uneven sidewalks in a wheelchair. And we did follow-up studies, actually, to see whether or not giving a different frame of reference, like instead of saying, this is what it's like to be par paralyzed, we said, this is what it's like to use this piece of equipment, you know, and, and try to assess whether people's attitudes improved. And those data were some, somewhat of a mess, and we're still trying to replicate some of that. But basically, when you ask people to navigate the environment, they're so influenced by the uneven sidewalks and that that the manipulation didn't even matter. They were just quite taken back by how they were stared at and they were much more aware of the you know socially induced nature of some mm. of the stigma and exclusion that disabled people face but but just to go back to to tie this up in a bow the simulation studies really did show um for the first time in a lot of ways that these things can backfire that right. they may not be useful as teaching tools even though participants say, this is a really useful teaching tool. I think we should see more of it in our doctoral programs or in our medical programs. And what's fascinating is since I've been on the road giving <laughs> speeches and talks about the, the book Ableism, I've had people from like psychiatric dis disability PhD programs really push back and say, but wait a minute, they're so fun. And we really think 
that these simulations of hallucinations, there are hallucination huh? simulations. You can wear headphones and hear people disparaging you and hear voices. And supposedly that is supposed to give medical students an insight into their what their psychotic patients may be experiencing. And once again, some studies have shown that those can also backfire, that people are really more fearful and mm. not necessarily more empathetic and really may want to avoid these groups more. And what may be driving this, this is somewhat speculative, but is this notion that these are groups anybody can join. And we don't mm. want to think about the fact that maybe someday we too will experience a psychiatric condition or a psychotic break or depression or, or a physical paralysis. impairment. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Or, or right. cognitive decline. Right. In fact, we will most likely, and people don't want to be reminded of that. I think a lot of these simulation activities do end up reifying the same stereotypes that these poor people are tragic, that no one wants to think about disability if they can help it. And maybe we should help them pushing their wheelchairs or offering assistance perhaps when it's unsolicited. So I, I think, you know, more could be done. And there's certainly a, a lot of research questions that have yet to be asked about some of these activities. It's just reminding me of like the explosion in the 90s of experiential teaching activities in quotes that were about raising awareness about oppression, various forms. And we had the privilege walk. Mm -hmm. It's still around, but that's when it sort of became really popular. These kinds of activities we're talking about now became really popular. The impairment, you know, simulations became really popular. I feel like in the nineties and, and beyond. And I like what you said about, well, yeah, but people say they like them. <laughs> so, but is that, our, is that the goal though? Like is the goal that people like them or is the goal that we're trying to raise awareness and complicate and critique and ask critical, powerful questions, right? That's not, that's not necessarily what's happening in those contexts. We wouldn't think to simulate race, right? This is well, no I was just longer... thinking that too. Can yeah. you imagine? There was that book, Black Like Me, um, yes. where he went into the golf courses and tried to get right. Can you? Video. I mean, no one would suggest this exactly, or and no one would say that they're religious fun. group membership. Yeah, but you may be aware. Uh, there's even a simulation on poverty, which is also kind of completely divorced from reality, and mm -hmm. people go through and have only so much money to spend and go to different stations, and it, yeah, I think it in a room trivializes right. Let's talk about the book. Okay. So why I bring this book into the world may be a little bit of a ridiculous question, considering how much we've talked so far, but I did want people to know about it. So ableism, the causes and consequences of disability prejudice, which came out in 2019 with Wiley. Tell us maybe why you wanted to, what are you, what were your main draws? Because this is not a, a small thing to do to bring the, a book into the world. What made you want to put in all the effort? I really didn't even have a book on my radar to write. Yeah. I didn't think I had enough of my own research and I was sort of narrowly thinking about that. But I um, had been, for lack of a better word, hoarding every article I could get a hold of that related to disability prejudice, disability attitudes, positive attitudes toward disabled people, studies uh, by Mackis who were looking at, you know, oh, let them win the game. You know, they need to be given special privileges and you know, when disabled people typically say, we don't want special, we don't have special needs, we have human needs, and we want civil rights. Yes, I was just hoarding all these studies, and, the, and <laughs> I had done some book reviews, and I was asked by someone if I would be willing to write a proposal. And I thought, I hadn't really thought about that, that mm. but there's really nothing out there that summarizes all the different mm. forms of ableism, which we can talk about, envy, pity, uh, paternalistic 
benevolence, like inspirational attitudes, mm -hmm. but also hate crimes, hostility, mm -hmm. invalidation. Disabled people sometimes have to get divorced before qualifying for Medicaid. It's just ridiculous. Uh, not to mention architectural barriers. But then also, I was interested in whether we could sort of think about what we know about the causes. What what are some of the contributing factors? Are they all learned? Are there any sort of evolved evolutionary holdovers from our uh, need to protect the self from perceived dangerousness or contamination? And I found some really amazing studies on on that. And so there, you know, we go chapter by chapter on what the unconscious forms or sources of ableism might include, including fear of death and fear of mm -hmm. bodily decline and mm -hmm. basically what the terror management people call creatureliness, you know, this Ooh. notion that we're animals, but we don't want to think of ourselves as yeah. animals. So we perfume our bodies and uh, make private the elimination of waste and so forth. Right. And then the, the learned things that contribute and, um, and the interaction-based things that contribute to different forms of ableism. And then the book sort of ends with a call for a set of research questions that have yet to be tackled on, on all of these things, um, since now we have it all nicely packaged in this one book. But it's been a, it's it was a five-year labor of love, and I'm just <laughs> glad that it's it's finished. I think maybe a, a teaching resource is needed now. I, I have these activist well, pages. I was going to ask you to tell us about the activist pages. Every chapter seems to have them. Yes, I love these activist yeah. pages because we the the book is infused from from insider perspectives, from yeah. interviews that we conducted, but also just quotes that people have given about their experiences with different impairments that mm -hmm. hearken to the different sources and consequences of ableism. Um, but but I thought it would be really useful for each chapter, which can be depressing, to talk about, well, what can we do about this? And what have activists on the front lines of disability justice and disability rights done to address, you know, these fears of contamination, but also these illogical stereotypes and these awkward interactions? And um, what are the next steps in terms of the disability rights movement? And structural changes that are needed. So each chapter does include some of these really amazing people who allowed me to interview them and share their work and their poetry and their art and their suggestions for addressing everything from microaggressions to policy changes that are really designed to uh, in increase representation in the media, increase representation of disabled people in the political arena, and just in academia, students and faculty. We're already here, but I think so much more could be done to raise awareness of what's possible. Why do you think that disability, I won't say it's the only form of um, inequity that's left out when we talk about social justice and various groups that are um, marginalized and, you know, afforded less power in society. But I will say this seems like one of the main groups that is left out of conversation. Does it go back to the fear of becoming part of the group? I what do you, you think is at hand here? I think that has a lot to do with like at the individual level, even just people showing up to talks that are about disability. That's like, that's not about me. I don't want to think about that. But I I think in particular with the academy, that is historically why some groups have been left out because this is a beacon of competency, of privilege, mm -hmm. of independence and of 
it hasn't historically been about social mobility or reaching out and democratizing education. It's been about gatekeeping and keeping certain people out. And when it comes to, we even have some data on this, when it comes to how professor and their attitudes toward disabled students, and many of them, the more they identified as members of the academy, as professors, uh, as, as academics, the less they were willing to sort of concede to accommodate and include students and be mentors to students. And and we, you know, speculate that this has everything to do with, you know, not wanting to dilute the grandiosity or the standing or the status of their very privileged disciplines. You can't be a major in biology or psychology. You really should consider these other majors. And, and, and that's what we found that there's pervasive uh, gatekeeping around discluding certain types of people from positions of power, which I know you're quite familiar with. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm just thinking about your top three stereotypes. I mean, maybe less relevant asexual, but incompetent and helpless and dependent, right. Or slash dependent. That fits what you just said. Like, why would I, as a faculty member, associate myself with someone who is incompetent and helpless? Well, that's interesting because that's something good for social justice academics to think about. Like, are they attending to this issue or or are they most often kind of not <laughs> and sort of do some self-reflection around that? I did want to ask you what is maybe a final closing thing, general advice back to um pedagogy or how people and this would be across disciplines so feel free to make it very broad what do you think would be good moves toward beyond a disability statement in your syllabus and also probably those you know can be improved the way they're the way they're presented but beyond that disability statement what would you say about curriculum and pedagogy in terms of more incorporation of disability studies critical Mm -hmm. disability studies you know I just am sort of stuck on that last question I know we want to wrap this but when when oh, professors okay. <laughs> highly identify, this is going to lead to this. Okay. When people highly identify with a group, right? They they don't want that sense of self to be diluted by members who might undermine what they think of their themselves. Right. It's not just their groups. And I think that's why mm-hmm. approaches to change and intersectionality and updating the curriculum to really reflect the populations we're serving needs to be both bottom up and top down. I know that grassroots mm-hmm. change is, is really essential, but I tend to be one who favors, not mandates, but structural policy level imperatives, if you will, that require, for example, the faculty do professional development on the regular that's around inclusive excellence. And that includes disability as part of the multicultural landscape. I think we need to have in our mission statements, broader, clearer recognition uh, and, and less fear around saying, here we are, a school that really has a critical mass of students on the spectrum. Let's celebrate that. We're we're doing something right with our intimate learning and global reach or you know, whatever your current tagline might be. I think that committees can make as part of their mandates, each committee on a campus. I'm just sort of thinking about academe right now, but uh, looking at data, are they disproportionately losing or failing to retain students of a mm. certain type, type or group that might really speak to the need to do better with uh, the way in which they're accommodating or uh, delivering or rolling out universal design kinds of options in the classroom. But that assumes they could get away from a deficit explanation. Yes. Yeah, that's so true. And and then in the classroom, you know, there's a disability angle to almost any discipline. And so mm-hmm. as, as we try to do better to uh, decolonize our syllabi and include works from 
different groups in different parts of the globe that are studying these issues to see whether these findings generalize. We also need to be thinking of including disabled scholars and that that work yeah. that is sometimes interdisciplinary, but there are some books, even in psychology, now texts that are really working to concertedly include in their content these these other angles and to figure out where there are interactions between general findings and the extent to which they depend on one's specific circumstances. But I can't speak highly enough of doing more at the at the level of advertising, at the level of corporate mandates that spend diversity, equity, and inclusion budgets on things like mitigating ableism at work and recognizing there are yeah. lots of benefits to the bottom line and to reaching new markets and in business settings when you recognize that the population includes a variety of people. And, and even more, this is a growing constituency, disabled people, that we're going to see some estimate up to 30% of those of us that had COVID may be now dealing with long COVID issues. And the disability community has for years had ways of working and being that are more flexible, that that don't undermine productivity, mm -hmm. that you know include more flexible ways of getting work done and and mm -hmm. and that also meet the needs of older adults adults who are you know experiencing differences as they age and may need better contrasting of the screens, these best practices and how to run conferences and hold meetings and <laughs> get people's input, not just orally who can talk the fastest, but, you know, who's, who's there present. You can begin to query and survey your, your audience and no matter what organization you work in. And you probably have disability expertise right built into the, the people that work there. And you wouldn't even <laughs> have to out them if it was an anonymous sort of way of querying folks about what works, what would make your work life more satisfying? What would improve your productivity? How can we better meet your needs? And then it really does need, you know, some push from the top so that people recognize that among the millions of initiatives we're all supposed to be juggling, this one <laughs> has a lot of bang for the buck. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I feel like you answered every question that I've had today, but is there anything else on your mind that you want to let people know, especially in the realm of being allies or accomplices. One one thing that has been a problem, and I think people are trying to address this, that are allies from other groups. Often we tend to focus and you know advocate for those groups that we belong to, and it's all about you know disability rights or the Black Lives Matter movement. But we need to be thinking about the fact that we all have disabled people in all of our groups, and we should yeah. be perhaps thinking about ways of acknowledging that the diverse membership within those various affinity groups when speaking about political inclusion and not just forgetting about disability as part of multicultural efforts, even in the elementary schools, when they call for parents to come and do, you know, disability, I'm sorry, diversity celebrations or multicultural mm -hmm. nights, you know, my daughter and I used to bring things in and celebrate oh, disability culture. Oh, nice. <laughs> You can do oh, that. Great. You you can ask your allies who tend to be more influence influencing of their mm -hmm. own in groups when it's not the person from the actual group that's saying we need your help. When it's yeah. people you know from the LGBTQ community who are also reaching back and saying you know we've played a role in the disability rights movement and we want to continue to push that agenda because we know that that will give all of us more access um to reproductive rights or whatever it might be right and so i i would ask our allies all over the place just to 
recognize that this is a group membership that confronts some of the same exact discriminatory exclusion, misunderstanding issues that, that they do. And it's not, as you said, it's not just about the body. So allies, just go get the book. <laughs> just yeah. get the book. Please read the book. Have a reading group at your, with your faculty with this book. That would be amazing. Um, okay. I, would, I, would I appreciate to you. visit folks yeah. too. If anybody hey, wants to come visit, you could have a book and you could come visit. You can also reach me through the book website, which is easy to remember. It's ableismbook.com. And there's some snippets in there that you might be able to enjoy reading from each chapter and some other resources. But yes, I would I would love to be invited to come speak to other programs or organizations and spread the word, spread the spread good the word. news. And I will put all those links in the episode notes. I have no idea how much people click on those, but they'll be there. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> All right. I thank you so much for giving us your time today. It has been very enlightening and it's really, we're scratching the surface, but it was also so much rich information. So I think people are going to get a lot of, a lot of new knowledge out of that. So I appreciate that. Thank you for the opportunity and for doing the podcast and for all of your work. Of course, of course. I have a blast. Thank you for listening to this episode of Enough, y'all. If you want to learn more, please visit drkimcase.com to sign up for my newsletter, find free resources, And check out my 12-week course on white anti-racism in action. Until we meet again, stay scrappy for truth and justice.